Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Joe Dater. And this is Minute 21. And Minute 21 begins with uh, Vasquez and Drake doing pull-ups. And it ends with Hudson asking Bishop to do the thing with the knife. Yeah, so there's uh, that is Joe Dater's voice, folks, not Mitch again. Uh, we have another guest host on this week. Uh, Hi. Joe, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me. I'm very happy to be here, and uh, I have with me as a guest Susan Kruglinski. Hey. And you are, of course, people who know songs you're sick of, my podcast will know you as the most frequent guest there. and Which I loved, yes. Yeah, and uh, probably um, foil. To me, I think that's probably a good, good description. Yes, yes. And you're 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 a foil. I'm a foil, and 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 now we're going to continue on with that podcast, hopefully with maybe a new version of it. Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> you're 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 possibly ending your your songs. You're sick of podcasts. That is true. And I mean, is that true? That is true. Yeah. Oh, well, let's put it this way: it's in, it's in cryo freeze currently, so, so I, it's going to be. Check back with me in fifty-seven years. <laughs> and so I'm so I'm stealing the idea. I've asked if I can rip it off, and he's given me permission. So I'm doing something like it. It'll be a 70s song show. So yeah, um, that'll be coming up hopefully this summer. Yeah, we were talking about it, and it was sort of like a K Billy Super Sounds of the 70s, the podcast. Yeah, it'll be like songs. That was a little bit of 70s songbook super show or something like that. And if you can get Stephen Wright, yes, to be um, to be a guest, that would be a coup. I'll try. Yeah. And then I'm a, right. I, I've been a science writer at Discover Magazine. I've done some science writing, so hopefully science will do some science here. I think we got some science to do here, for sure. Maybe later in the minute, but... Well, um, this movie is science fiction, but yes. we're going to give you the science facts. I'd, I'd say with all the genre uh, labels that you could put on this movie, the science part is down the list <laughs> a ways. It's not high on the but list. Yeah. It's not super high on the list, but... Since this has about six different genre uh, labels that it could be given, I think that you know that's to be understood. So, um, so we've just woken up. Everybody's just woken up from cryo freeze. Uh, we've had Apone sort of get on uh, on Hudson's case a little bit. We've got the um, the Marines have come out and started milling about a little bit. They talked about Ripley, and now we have. This this minute begins with Drake coming over to Vasquez to join her doing some pull-ups. Um, I find this to be an interesting moment because we've got the first character dynamic we really get is between Apone and Hudson. But now we're getting the character dynamics starting to build between the Marines. And this one in particular seems to be that Vasquez is the alpha of this group. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yes. I would think so. I think this is uh, this is funny that this movie is talked about as being... Uh, having uh, this significant female uh, action hero uh, in Ripley, and everyone's looking askance at her, like who's this woman? And when she goes to, she wants to use the power loader. Apone gives her this side eye, like, "What are you? You're going to use a power loader, a girl?" Meanwhile, they've they've been working with Vasquez for who knows how long. Why are they so Why are they so surprised that a woman can do stuff? Well, I think it could be something to do with her. You know how she's characterized. Like the, the first thing they say about her, Vasquez and Pharaoh, the two female Marines that come together to discuss her, they call her Snow White right yeah. away. I don't think Ripley is not playing that role that they're playing. Where they're, yeah, Ripley's not blending in with the with the guys, so to speak. So I think that's a little bit of it. They're not. Uh, maybe they're not even used to. I've talked about this a little bit in previous weeks. 
I think there's a defeminization in this future that's going on and, and yeah. Ripley doesn't exactly fit into it. So maybe that, that that's the reason that they sort of look down on her or give her that traditional female role in their minds to where she might not be able to use a loader. She might not be able to handle, handle herself. I and they, that, of course, yeah, they don't really know do the story it. behind how she got out of the, of the trouble in the first place. Well, I did notice, I noticed, you're right about this sort of defeminization because I noticed they have what looks to be co-ed facilities. They seem to be dr- getting dressed in the same locker room. And it's it reminds me of RoboCop, where they have the same sort of thing going on. And 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 like everything in this movie, it's so heavy-handed. They just pound immediately. Your introduction to Vasquez is super, you know, pull-up woman with muscles coming out all over her body, and you know, the bandana across her head. Just immediate pounding into your to your head, you know, what this character is like over the top. Well, do you think it's too much though? Yes, I think I think that's the for me. This whole movie has to me has always been way too heavy handed, and and this is the perfect example. I mean, this whole scene from when they're coming out of it works. It does. It's a comic book of a movie, and these are broadly drawn caricatures, not necessarily that's for sure characters, and especially the Marines. The Marines are drawn with the broadest of strokes. And you could almost see the black ink lines around them, yes, and the you know the the dot matrix printing of their of their primary colors. You know they're so simplistically uh, defined in this very comic book character kind of way. And I think that's that's the idea here. You know this is this is this is this movie is a meant to be a comic book come to life. It's meant to be an efficient um, action delivery system. But that's a pretty big contrast from the first movie. Very much. So you kind of yeah. have to get you kind of have to get used to that. Yeah, but I, it's it's done about as well as you could do this kind of a thing, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's it's very, um, it's very two dimensional, but that's not always bad. Yes, yeah, I agree that it's it's a little bit. It might be a little bit much, but what we've been talking about leading up to this minute is uh, partially that. James Cameron, who's well aware of Ridley Scott's Alien, has slowly integrated us into Cameron land. Like yeah, we're getting, yeah. sort of he uses a lot of Scott's octane. techniques early on, but slowly it's coming into being one of his movies. And, then, and now we know since Aliens, you know, what a James Cameron movie is, and it's always big, broad caricatures. And what he wants is to stereotype characters, make sure the audience understands exactly what they're about so that there's no need to worry about it as the action progresses yeah, and he does a, so in this particular case so much so you're visually vasquez is very uh, masculine looking she's you know pumping her guns she's got the the bandana on like you said and then he on top of that has a male character ask her if she's ever been mistaken for a man so he's really trying to right. get this idea across and yeah. i think you're right it might feel like a little bit much but by the time you're deep into the action of the movie Having this much of an understanding of the characters, I think, actually works for it. Yeah, I was, I was, I was writing down which of the characters I think have more than one dimension. Or, I, I'm sorry, I hate that expression, one-dimensional characters, because that would be someone you could not see, because they would have only length or only height. And <laughs> so, it's the phrase is two-dimensional, a two-dimensional character that has uh, no depth. Uh, so when when you ever hear anyone say, "Oh, these characters are one dimensional," please give them a well. Actually, for me, read Flatland. What is what well, is that? Ac- 
actually, Joe, these are figurative dimensions we're talking about here. Well, <laughs> so it's not really. I think, uh, yeah, I get what you mean, though. Um, but, but yeah, you were I, was, saying, I was writing out like which which of these characters are not like brought, drawn in this very two dimensional way, and some of them some of them aren't. You get more of an of a of a depth, and you get more of an arc with some of these characters. But then the bulk of them, the Marines, like Hudson and uh, and Apone uh, for for another, you know, the tough as nails, cigar chomping, a drill sergeant. And, uh, you know, these characters, they're, they're just cartoon characters from the start to the end of the movie. I would like to uh, bring up uh, this uh, for a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeanette Goldstein. Yes. Huh? Yep. Yeah. Who now, nowadays. Yeah, I don't know how much you've talked about her on the uh, previous week when she uh, first made her appearance. But I do want to mention that she's just great. She's great, yeah. and she's a currently a, a bra salesperson. That's right. She sells um, large-sized women's bras. She has her own business, and that's awesome. And that her her bra size enters into this discussion because I was I think I was listening to the interview with her on uh, um, where are they now? No, I wasn't. I, I was, was there, there too. too. Sorry, uh, and I was there too, where she mentioned that. Uh, she came up with the idea to be doing the chin-ups because the line was there of Hudson saying, you ever been mistaken for a man? But if she's just standing there, there's no mistaking her for a man. So she came up with the idea of, uh, like, I should be doing the chin-ups in order to, you know, I should be showing off my arms and or in order to drive that point home. And she really did the chin-ups. You think she's doing them in that close-up? I was actually going to bring that up. She said it she was so much like she somebody she pushing was. her legs up. There. Didn't they do real marine? Didn't they she do real? She was training. Maybe for she's this? lying. I don't know. No, I think no, they did real marine training for this. Though the, the, the actors didn't they? They did. They went through boot camp um, together, all except for Michael Bean, who was a last minute replacement for James Remar. Right. Oh, uh, James I Remar didn't, was I didn't originally know that Hicks. That's interesting. James Remar. Wow. Yeah, he was a he was a bit of a hand. We've already talked about this a little bit, but he, I guess he was a bit of a handful in multiple ways on the set, and they couldn't keep him around. I just he fired can't see a the shotgun on set. Him, and, uh, took was taking a lot of drugs and things, so he was there for the for the for the boot camp, but uh, Bean wasn't, which is kind of interesting because Michael Bean's character does sort of stand out from the rest of the Marines in his behavior and so on. He does, but and I, I, do, I would think they would have probably done well to exclude Gorman from that too. They might have that. That yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure if he was there or not, but yeah, that would have helped too to have that disparity between him and the rest of the Marines. But um, yeah, I think that I think Jeanette Goldstein's doing the the chin ups in the wide shot. It's that close up where hmm. she's got to read the line or turn around and read the line. I don't know. It, it's neither here nor there. Well, I just I, thought. I mean, if I was, when her, I was I watching, I was like, that it looks too. like there's somebody down below, maybe pushing her up a little bit to help her out. But I don't know. It just didn't quite ring as true as the other one, but. I also want to but mention yeah, it's a great that's a great bit of improv, you know, even if it was in rehearsal. Oh, that's yeah. a great bit of improv because it really does help the scene. Yeah. I also want to mention that uh her father is from the Bronx, so she is half from the Bronx. As which is, is my ancestral homeland, yes. as you know. Yes. And I looked her up and I knew I was aware of her being this kind of chameleon who shows up in James Cameron's films and nobody recognizes her from one to the other one. As uh, in uh, T2, she's um John Connor's guardian or aunt or whatever she is. It's like foster mother. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. 
she's not very nice. And then she's the uh, Irish mommy in Titanic, and that's literally the name of her character in the credits, Irish mommy. <laughs> she's also one of the vampires in Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, which was uh, a James Cameron production. So she's always been in, in the midst of Cameron's world. And we talked about it last week with uh, Tasha Robinson and Kwame Opum uh, were on last week, and we talked a lot about her status as this sort of Latina uh, figure from this movie, mm. even though she's in brownface, and how personally I didn't realize that she wasn't of, uh, of Latin descent until Titanic. Even having seen her in the other movies, I still thought, oh, she must still be. I, I just didn't pick up on it. I didn't really know her name at that time, the, who the actress was. When I saw her in yeah. Titanic, I went, oh, yeah, there's no mistaking that. She's not Latina, that's for sure. Well, as a Latina myself, I can honestly say <laughs> that she pulls it off very well. Uh, I think she has some Brazilian. Yeah, she's not entirely. Yeah. She's, she's mixed. Not entirely without her, uh, her uh, Latin blood. Yeah, I think there's a, a quarter yeah. or so of her of Latin blood in, uh, you know, in her heritage. And a, so. a lot of spray tan. Yeah, that's the, that's the part that's maybe a little bit more. These well, days is is pretty troublesome or not. Well, is it uh, though? I wanted to ask that very question: is is Vasquez okay in twenty in twenty seventeen? <sighs> we this is what we really talked about a lot last mm. week. And um, well, what was you know, your conclusion? I, I didn't feel comfortable coming to a conclusion on it. I, <laughs> to me, you don't. To me, you don't have this character now. Like you don't make aliens now with a. With Jeanette Goldstein playing Vasquez, but in 1986, it's been it's it happened. It's done. Uh, probably she was a, an inspiration to to girls at the time, yeah. women at the time. Maybe I mean she might have meant something to some people. And so to me, there's probably more more good than bad that came out of it, and it's what's done is done. That's kind of the conclusion that I came to. But you certainly don't try it now. And it wasn't that long ago that Emma Stone played an Asian in or a uh, Hawaiian Asian, you know, Asian Pacific. Yeah. And that uh, worked character. out great. <laughs> that worked out great. Oh, that that huge hit movie that I don't even <laughs> yeah, remember the name of. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the fact that her name is Jeanette Goldstein, which is you know such a an obviously Jewish name, uh, like. If this movie were made today, would they get Jeanette Vasquez and have her play Goldstein? Is that that's the question? Um, would that be okay? Um, but I wonder if if she had a more ethnically ambiguous name, if she had a, a last name, if she was Jeanette Dater, say she had some last name that no one can figure out, uh, would anyone care? I don't know. I don't know. The spray tan and the accent <laughs> would also probably have to go. It's a bit much. Like, I guess you're really right. the. These days, we talked about last week, you have uh, Michelle Rodriguez ready-made to play this role. And and mm -hmm. it's basically what James Cameron did with Avatar was recast this role with Michelle Rodriguez, right? So nowadays, you know, I can't speak for the, the, the variety of Latin uh, female actors in England uh, to play this character in 1986. You probably could have found somebody, but... Nowadays, there's no excuse for it. I think there's plenty to, you know, plenty of people that could play this role. Specifically, Michelle Rodriguez would be uh, already ready to go. So, I mean, to me, you just we're past it. The conversation began, you know, years ago. We have these problematic uh, roles like Emma Stone and is that movie called Aloha? I think it is. I forget. I think it is. It's it said hello and goodbye uh, at the box office in one weekend. So I think it was appropriate name. Right. But once that character came out and the discussion began and the discussions about Iron Fist and the discussions about Doctor Strange and on and on. I think once the discussion's out there, it's time you know to fess up and say, 
we could try a little harder and and have the proper representation here. But yeah. in 1986, it just wasn't that conversation hadn't started yet. I think, and and you know maybe it should have, but it didn't. So to me, Vasquez still works now yeah. as a as a piece of film history. But it's definitely time to move on and 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 cast the proper, the appropriate people in these roles. Yeah, and this I believe was the same year that Fisher Stevens played uh, an Indian man in uh, Short Circuit. Yeah, it went far more caricaturish too. It's Mickey Rooney esque. <laughs> it is. It's, it's terrible. It's very it's really cringe worthy to say the least. Uh, one more thing uh, I do want to say about uh, Jeanette Goldstein is she was in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the Terry Gilliam film. And even though I knew her from all of her other films, I figured I was a pretty savvy guy, cinema savvy. I knew I knew that was her in Titanic. I knew all that stuff. And yet I was completely surprised yesterday to find out that she was in Fear and Loathing because I've seen that movie a dozen times. It's one of my favorite movies. Never noticed her. I have zero recollection of her being in that movie either. Yeah, so. well, if you want to talk problematic, um, uh, she doesn't have a gun. She doesn't wear a bandana. She doesn't kill any any giant um, lizard bugs. Um, she's a hotel maid. Well, surely she had some lizard bugs to kill in, in that particular hotel. There were right? lizard bugs in the no? film, coincidentally. Maybe as many as there are in this film, but I, none of them got their uh, their heads blown off. <laughs> wow. So. <laughs> so this is the point where we're also establishing the relationship between Vasquez and Drake. In, of course, the James Cameron cartoony, very, very heavy-handed way. Uh, huge foreshadowing. Huge, huge It's a huge foreshadowing of, of uh, what? Of something. Bet- of a minute we haven't seen you yet. Want, you want, yeah, you want this, you want to establish this love, you know, this brotherly, sisterly love between Drake and Vasquez uh, for whatever might happen in the future, which I think if, you know, you've seen these movies, you kind of can probably predict at this point. Couldn't you? Now you think about how they like they seem to like like each other a lot, and that liking manifests in a lot of slapping. Right? Do we do we see you, Susan? You said brotherly, sisterly, but let's just say brotherly in this particular case. <laughs> and, and you see, Vasquez probably is the big brother, right? Like she's certainly taking the lead in everything here. He's, yeah. He comes over and joins her for the pull-ups. He yeah. thinks that uh, she's just too badass, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting that we're getting. She's de- she's diminutive to him. She's female, which traditionally would be not the alpha in a situation, but he's ready to give it to her, to give her that status. Yeah. I think it's an interesting dynamic. But it is really cartoony. I mean, flat out, a guy tells somebody <laughs> they're just a bad. Man, you're just a badass. You know, that couldn't be more on the nose. But also, these are on the nose people. I, I do think that. We could nitpick on the nose with these Marines, but at the same time, they are on the nose. I mean, that's kind of the point of their whole existence. The, the hubris of them is what they're is the subtext with the with the Marines. So they're going to be you know, bragging and, and complimenting each other, giving each other shit, whatever it may be. Big Marine like bro talk between the, each other. So I don't know. I mean, I'm fine with it, but you're right. It does strike you, like especially watching in these little microcosms of a minute. At a time, all this stuff really kind of hits you harder well, again, as being on the nose. I, I'm, I'm such a big Alien, the original movie fan. That To me, that's a perfect 10 movie. And I, I remember, you know, seeing when I, when I came to see this Aliens in the theater, being a little disappointed in how heavy-handed it was. And so for me, I've, I've never gotten over that. I mean, I think Cameron should have pulled back a little bit and let it be a little more of a smooth transition. But, you know, I mean, that's just a matter of opinion. But I think it's a little too contrasty with the original. 
I, th- I think the first 10 minutes or so are a nice little subtle build. Like you get a little bit, you, it's very alien for the first five minutes. And then every minute we found that it would, a new bit of Cameron would come in, a new bit of Cameron would come in every minute. Until- and at this point though, once, once she said goodbye to Jones, uh, this is what we sort of figured out last week. Once she said goodbye to Jones, who's the la- other last survivor from the, the original movie, and they make that hard cut to that giant rifle flying through space, then it's over. Yeah, like, it's, all yeah, subtlety it's is over. It's a giant rifle. It's, it's a, true. It really is. It is. It's exactly what it is. And so I think from that point on, if, if you're reading a movie, you know, if you're really paying attention to reading a movie, that should just slap you right in the face probably. And you know, oh, well, subtlety's gone. We're not going to get that anymore. I'd like to – I would like to talk um, uh, in this minute about baked goods. Right, of course. Um, specifically cornbread. Yes. There's a lot of cornbread. It's, it's, as far as I can tell, it's the only food they're eating, right? It's, we don't there's get a lot any of cornbread and there's a lot of discussion of cornbread. And it's one of those things that comes back from the original film too. So there was cornbread in the original film. Was and, there? Yeah, there was. There was uh, I mean this, this scene where they – they're they're in the mess hall because um, after the uh, the the um, the chin ups, it cuts to now they're in the mess hall. This is very much like uh, a scene from the original film where they're sitting around, you know, BSing and laughing. Uh, they've just woken up from cryo sleep and they're having their first meal after that. And there's cornbread, and they're complaining about it. They're complaining it's about it. Oh, it's terrible. And what's this crap supposed to be? Cornbread, I think. You know, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's. If you think it's cornbread, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put money on that. It is actually cornbread. Yeah, it, it's sort of. It's just a little gentle echo from the original movie, right? It doesn't really have any of the um, depth because there was a lot to the the dinner scenes, yeah. the the mess hall scenes in Alien. This doesn't. It's just kind of a little echo, just to remind you. Oh, this is the same world. These guys are still workaday people. They're going to complain about the food. But again, the uh, co- the contrast in the original, it was improvised. You could feel the improv. You could feel that right. the director was just like, "Go, just go eat. Do you know? Just talk like you would." And this, so it's such a huge contrast. The lines are so scripted here. Yeah, I think a lot of this is yeah. It's again, yeah. It's a manufactured idea. Like they're trying. He says we are going to have a scene like Alien. Well automatically it's going to be a little bit derivative, right? If they're, if you're doing that. Sure. And then it's going to be a little, feel a little bit manufactured, but you know, yeah, they're, so they're complaining about food. So we get the idea that they're just like the other guys, but you're right. The scene feels completely different. This, there's nothing behind it. We're, we're getting to exposition here, uh, a little bit of chicanery, of course, but also just, we want to set up all the characters and everything, all the character dynamics as we're going forward here. You so do get, you do get we got to introduce red. Bishop. You do get cornbread just like an alien, and you do get a point where somebody says "baby," like "Hey, baby." Right, and in, 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 well, let's get to what's in between because that's really interesting. So, what's the op? It's a rescue mission. You'll love it. Um, there's some juicy colonist daughters we have to rescue from their virginity. <laughs> so this is... Dumbass colonists. Yeah. I, I first of all, right. I'm a big Apone fan. I don't know if uh, you've talked about him uh, in the previous. He has his best scene a lot. He had his best scene last week, so I'm sure you talked about him quite a bit. My favorite Apone moment is 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 last week, but I do love Apone. He has some good stuff coming up uh, later as well. Well, I think it's also we're getting another little echo from Alien here, right? Uh, dinner table sexual harassment, right? Of sorts, or... Followed by somebody saying, "Baby, 
Hey, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Ripley is the only one offended by this, right? We have other females at the table. Now, in Alien, nobody oh, was offended. Oh, I don't think she's offended. I think she, she's, she's seen it all. I like that Sigourney gives this look, and it's a great look because it isn't quite like when, when Epone says, there's some juicy colonist daughters we got to rescue from the virginity. They cut to Ripley, and she gives a look, but it's not quite offended. It's not like, oh, what crude, horrid men so uncouth with their off-color comments. Ooh. It's much more like her look is more like, Oh, fuck, these guys are going to get us all killed. Right, 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 right. Huh. These are dopes. Yeah. That's I what so. I, I think, see in her face. I think she, I, I, okay, I mean, I, I buy that. But I definitely think that she's put off by the fact that they're saying this about people that she thinks are probably in grave danger. I think that she is offended by this. I mean, I don't think she's offended by it simply as misogyny. I think it's the fact that they're right. talking about these colonists that she probably assumes are either dead or in, in grave danger. Hmm. So I think there's a little bit of that to it. But I, yeah. that's a good reading. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with your reading of it. That's just how I've always read it. But everybody else, you know, like in Alien, everybody laughs at the joke. There's no, like, being offended based on simply on misogyny. Everybody's one of the guys here. So, yeah. I think Ripley, we've talked a lot about her being a little out of time, you know, because mm-hmm. clearly she's not from this this era and she's a fish out of water through pretty much this entire movie. I think there's a little bit of that, too. She's I think she's a little surprised to hear these guys talking this way, but uh, particularly about these colonists. Yeah, I keep forgetting that she's something like 87 years old. And so naturally, she's going to be easily offended. She's like, nothing has changed, which is... Basically what all of us women say every 20 years or so. Right. But, you know, then the then the, the blue conversation goes even further. <laughs> and this is really what I – I really – got to talk we about need, these Ar- we Arcturians. Need to talk, we need to talk about yeah, Arcturian we gotta, Boontang. Yeah. We definitely have to have a, a serious discussion about Arcturian <laughs> Boontang at this point. Well, I mean there's a couple of, of things that are important, I think. Well, one that's more important than, other, than the other, but – I, I did a little research on Arcturians, guys, and this is, <laughs> I don't know if you did or not. And, and you know, this Well, is I all... did some quote-unquote research on Arcturians, if you catch my <laughs> meaning, know, baby. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, so let's just say Frost is saying, hey, I sure wouldn't mind getting more of that Arcturian puntang. Remember that? And they do the little slappy hand finger point, you know. But the one you had was male. Frost and Hudson, yeah. No matter when it's Arcturian, baby. Yeah, so that that's, you know, fine. I'm not going to uh, kink shame anybody. I don't no, think it's no, I don't, it's progressive. Well, I, oh, it's I would never I would never kink shame anyone. I think it's very progressive, right. but I would like to There's a problem to bring though, up. guys. Like in my research, I found a okay. small problem though. Now, mind you, this is extra textual stuff. This yeah. is not in the movie. Okay. But um I'm going to read you what uh, this a short description of an Arcturian. All right. So Arcturians are roughly humanoid, bipedal in form and comparable in size to humans. So far so good. However, they are comparatively lacking in mental capacity. Their intelligence has been likened to that of lower apes. Now mm. I'm disturbed a little bit. <laughs> okay, I'm not exactly yeah. sure yeah. what's going on yeah. if, you are, if you are having sexual uh, relations with an Arcturian. Now I'm a little bit troubled. Yeah, I was picturing an advanced civilization, but... You, you I, almost can't help picturing now, if you're watching this movie now, the Avatar figures, obviously. You just picture these kinds of gray, you know, sort sexy of gray, blue, sexy, sexy blue, blue, androgynous yeah, uh, yeah. sort of, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, can, it was a, this worked a lot better for me without the research. And, of course, we can <laughs> ignore the research because so. it's probably bullshit. It's off of Xenopedia, so who, who knows who wrote it? But that would reflect but, the game, right? Well, I was just – I was thinking about, like, what does this mean? The one you had was male. doesn't matter when it's Arcturian. Does that mean that the Arcturians either have both – genders within they, they only have one gender that encompasses both or does well, it mean they can they can switch out they can they can say so what would you like today well they, they have a queen so oh. they, they they lay eggs they're mammalian to, for the most part but they do lay eggs apparently hmm. and they are warm-blooded so i'm not even sure uh hey science writer does that even work <laughs> i don't even know i don't even know if that works but um uh, you know, I get the idea that it's like, uh, if you'll recall the next uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episode where they have a completely androgynous uh, civilization that they run across and Riker falls in love one, with one of them. I, I kind of always thought of it, okay, so they're just completely androgynous. It doesn't matter because when you're talking to one or having you know relations with one, it's all the same between every one of them. So that's what I figured that meant. But th that doesn't – Spunkmeyer does say – Yours was male, so that doesn't really jibe, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's, you know, and in, in, in actual James Cameron uh, perspective, he very much, you know, admits that he based a lot of this on v the Vietnam War. He wanted to get a Vietnam War feel. Uh, in fact, saying mm. poontang, poontang itself is such a weird kind of outdated expression it was like said in the 30s and the 50s but it is kind of a vietnam expression it's a you know it's probably got some filipino origin it's it's probably a, a an expression that comes from um southeast asia and we dropped a bomb on poon poontang in 1968 <laughs> i think that was i think it was an expression used you know during that nixon era. gave the order to destroy poontang and so you know southeast asia one night in bangkok you know it's that androgynous um, sexual subculture, you know, obviously existed back in the Vietnam days, and I think that's kind of what he was trying to reflect. That's that's my guess. Um, yeah, I, I I think that's pretty that's pretty close. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, he's trying to evoke that. Yeah, for sure. I I, w I would like to bring up what this says about Frost. Okay. <laughs> no, who's, who's, hear me who's out. the who's... handsomest guy in the whole film? By the way, you think? Oh yeah, heck yeah, Rico Ross. Heck yeah. He's your dude. I love that guy. Uh, really? And and he gave up he gave up Full Metal Jacket for this movie. Really? Yes, I didn't know that. he did. He was signed yeah. up. He was all signed up for Full Metal Jacket, and Cameron really wanted him, so he rewrote his part to be a little bit bigger and more colorful. And uh, Frost gave it up, which was such a big mistake. I think. I think it was a mistake. That's well, yeah, because he I didn't mean, really beef up his his role all that yeah, much. Yeah, it's not. It's you not know, considering yeah. what happens it's later. Not, he, Basically, he gives him a line about poontang and a line about cornbread. Yeah, is that about all he gets? Yeah, yeah, and getting, yeah. Gets, yeah he's well. I don't want to spoil anything, but no. yeah, he's among the first to to go. Yeah. Uh, well, I did look. No, I didn't see that about Rico Ross. I did see that he had lived in the UK for years, so it makes sense that he was up for a role in 1987 in in a Kubrick film. Is, well, actually, these yeah. movies were they shot side by side. They were actually uh, apparently oh, really? inter uh, intermingling parties. They had a Full Metal Jacket Aliens crew parties because while uh, Full Metal Jacket came out a year later, it's you know how Kubrick shoots. He was he had been shooting oh, sure. for a it couple takes of years. Three so, years yeah. so yeah, there was actually a lot of of intermingling of the cast and crew of the two movies. Anyway, well, that's interesting. so I didn't know that. I do know I do know that. Um, that's funny how Kubrick f films are always adjacent to some classic sci-fi film because of course he shot the shining on the same stages like right next to the empire strikes back and 
used right some of be- the same fake snow. Yeah, he did it right in between. The Shining is shoved right in between Empire and Raiders because the because yeah. the lobby of the of the Overlook is a is the Well of Souls uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. So yeah. that's how he met Spielberg. And yeah, he always is kind of well at that time. Those that era, those guys, they all loved shooting in England. I don't know everything. Uh, all those yeah, classics Pinewood. from the late well, Pinewood had and, and at the time. I think at the time the UK it was cheaper to shoot there. Uh, yeah. And I think there that that was a big advantage. But they also they had bigger bigger sound stages and facilities. They had the uh, I think Pinewood had what what's called the 007 stage, which was at the time the largest sound stage in the world. Yep. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but you can go to Pinewood and just wa- just go on the lot and just walk around it on Google Street View. If you go on uh, Google Maps and you look up Pinewood Studios, uh, Borumwood, England. Uh, the street view will allow you to uh, enter the gate and just uh, kind of go through the uh, streets in between the sound stages. And you can even sort of see, as the Google truck was passing through in between sound stages, sometimes the great big door is open and you can see what looks like part of a set of something that was being filmed when they did that. And you can see bits of scenery in the dumpsters that have been thrown away. Uh, So if you're curious... That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and can't so. get to London. You can you can just go on Google Street View and take a virtual stroll around uh, the grounds of Pinewood. Also, uh, let me mention Ar- uh, Arcturus. You know, is a real star. It's like the fourth brightest star. So there is it has a possible. It's, it's the <clears throat> fourth sexiest star, fourth sexi- baby. <laughs> they do. It does have a one planet circ- orbiting that could have life on it. Has could have water. Um, and it. Uh, but is this this is the only mention until. Uh, alien versus predator of any other kind of life form. Am I right? I think it's the only one and only mention. Yeah, that's why I was going to bring up the other part of what, what's important to talk about with this this line about the Arcturians is that it's the second time uh, within the last minute that we've had, well, in the previous minute and then in this minute, we've had mention of aliens as if they were kind of commonplace. Right. Because Bill Paxton, you know, when when they say, "Oh, well, I guess Ripley saw an alien once," he says, "Whoopty fucking do!" Right? Like, oh, big right. deal. So apparently, aliens—they've seen a lot of them, and now we have the suggestion of actual sexual congress with aliens, which makes it even more uh, every day. You know, like apparently, there's a lot of species of alien right. out there, and they deal with them on a regular basis. And it feels a little bit more like Star Trek, right? We're starting to feel like there's been a lot of first contact made out there, well, and where an alien. I got, you know, I always was under the assumption that they were not used to seeing anything uh, that was that was non-human. So, well, I think this, I don't know. This is the opposite now. I think it's implied. I th- I always feel like it's implied that that's what they do. That's what this marine troop does yep. is yep. deal with aliens um, and you know eliminate eliminate foes uh, and, and probably often, but you know they they talk about bug hunts, which is a Vietnam expression that has nothing to do with bugs or you know um minor skirmishes but in any case their use of bug hunt obviously brings to mind the alien but more of the the uh, face hugger where that's what you could picture them going after is these kinds of insect-like aliens maybe bird-like aliens pest aliens alien pests not not the type of alien you might have sex with like an arcturian well this brings up my idea completely more alien this brings up my idea um, which is what what I would like to see is a spin-off film, a spin-off prequel showing the adventure on Arcturus and what happened with the colonial marines on Arcturus at that time. 
uh, and we would see uh, Frost and Apone and uh, and Spunk Meyer uh, whooping it up on Arcturus. So if Aliens is a typical sort of 80s action film, this movie would be a typical 80s teen sex comedy, a, a joyous romp of uh, the pursuit of Arcturian Poontang. Right now, as we speak here in New York City, it's Fleet Week. That could be what it was, a furlough. You know, this that could be where they go. But maybe they also had to yeah, hunt some bugs and protect those those fine, sexy Arcturians. It's called Alien, comma Shore Leave. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Or Fleet, Fleet, Fleet Week's week. good too. Alien, Alien Shore Leave: The Search for Arcturian Puntang. <laughs> I want to see yeah, that. Well, I want like stripes I, meets stripes meets uh, Revenge of the Nerds or right. I want to see that film, romp, yeah. and I want to see it on Showtime at two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea, Joe. All right. Um, well, the last thing we get in this minute is Hudson uh, revealing that there's some sort of a knife thing for Bishop to do, uh, and he's begging him thing. to do it. But I think that that can lead us into tomorrow, don't you guys think? I think yes. I think so. We can talk about the thing, the thing with the knife. Does what could the knife thing be? I don't know. But everybody seems to know but us. I guess we'll find out tomorrow. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess that'll do it for today. Uh, Susan, you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet if there is any place? Yeah, I'm actually on Twitter as um, Susan Tekla Kruglinska, which is, you know, I mean, just try and figure that out. But I'm I'm there. You have a profile on ArcturianDate.com. <laughs> and there too, yes. Yes. And you can find me on uh, the, uh, the the Twitter at uh, Joe Dater uh, and other social media sites, even ones that haven't been invented yet. And, of course, you can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. You can come over to AlienMinute.com and drop a couple bucks in the virtual tip jar if you want to help pay the bills a little bit. It would be greatly appreciated. And, of course, every Monday we like to thank Pete the Retailer and Alex Robinson over at Star Wars Minute for uh, coming up with this format and loaning it out to us. Thank you for doing that, guys. And if you've never listened to their show for some reason, go to StarWarsMinute.com or find them on iTunes. All right, so that's going to do it for Minute 21. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 22.